seated. And if you would turn in your copy of the Scriptures to Galatians chapter 4. As I said last week, I wanted to consider this idea of sonship, of adoption uh, more fully. And so thought that we would spend an extra week on these uh, seven verses, really uh, focusing in on verses 4 through 7. Please hear the word, the word of God. Galatians chapter 4. I mean, I mean that the heir, as long as he, as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were born or I'm sorry, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would pour out uh, the Spirit of your Son into our hearts now. As your Word is read and preached, I pray that we would receive it by faith. And that as your Spirit cries out within us, we would join your Spirit and cry, Abba, Father, as we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For the preparation for this sermon, I read this book this week, Children of the Living God by Sinclair Ferguson. And it is a fantastic book. Uh, I know many of you know of Sinclair Ferguson uh, through the R.C. Sproul conferences. Uh, I got to learn this directly from Sinclair Ferguson as he was one of my teachers at Westminster Seminary. And um, I want to refer to this book here, especially in the introduction uh, to this sermon. And just to give you a couple of, of notes, I decided to switch points two and one so that we are going to be talking about adoption being the primary identity for the Christian first, adoption then being the goal of our salvation secondly. And we'll go from there. Sinclair Ferguson in his book says that this idea of sonship has become um, less emphasized uh, in the uh, modern church. He says one reason why this is the case is that we've had a liberal theology that has sprung up uh, in churches here in America, especially in the last generation, that emphasis or that put the emphasis on the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. And uh, and he says that Christians 
mistaken, mistakenly yet, um, yet understandably, because of this, have tended to uh, steer clear of teaching or preaching or even writing on this idea or this theme of sonship. And then he made a statement that uh, really surprised me. And he made this statement uh, in connection with why we don't focus on sonship uh, as much as we should. He said the idea that we are made sons and daughters of God is often hidden by the bright glow of our justification by faith. Indeed, only occasionally has sonship been seen as much more than a subsidiary, if positive, element in the Christian life. And his thought is, we focus so much on justification by faith, on being saved, that this idea of sonship is just a secondary um, point in our theology that receives uh, little emphasis. But he says that this theology of sonship is at the heart of the the heart of understanding. The heart of the whole understanding of the Christian life. He says um, that it shapes all of the diverse experiences of our life. Here's the way he says it. It is the way, not, not the only way, but the fundamental way for the Christian to think about himself or herself. Our self-image, if it is to be biblical, will begin just here with this theology of sonship. Did you hear that? He is saying that for you, in your identity as a Christian, the fundamental way you should think about yourself is being a child of God. That is absolutely necessary. Especially as it relates to how we think about our assurance of salvation. See, often when we think about our assurance of salvation, we think of it in relation to the evidence. We examine ourselves. Am I faithful enough? Am I repentant enough? Do I love God enough? Am I sincere enough? And we base our assurance on the answers to those questions. Self-examination does have a place in the Christian life. But it is not the starting point for how we think about our assurance of salvation. Remember Romans chapter 7? The Apostle Paul says, When I want to do good, I find that evil is right there with me. What this means is that when we want to believe God's promises, there's still going to be unbelief. So when we ask, am I faithful enough? We're always going to see areas of unbelief. Or when we ask, am I repentant enough? We're always going to uh, know that there are sins in our life that we need to repent of. When we ask, do I love God enough? We always know that that self-love 
is going to be competing with our love for God. Or when we ask if I am sincere enough, there's always going to be insincerity mixed with our sincere love for God. And so when we come to this idea of assurance, if we start with asking these questions based on this evidence, can you see how our assurance is going to be somewhat shaky? Because we're unable to answer these questions as fully and as um, strongly as we would like. When we think about this doctrine of assurance... And when we take ourself and our self-examination of our faithfulness as the starting point, it's going to get us in trouble. We shouldn't start with ourselves, first of all. Rather, we should start with what God says about us if we trust in God. And what do, or if we trust in Christ. And what does God say? He says that, our, that if you are in Christ... You are a child of God. If you are in Christ, God has adopted you into His family. You belong to Him. You are His child. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. J.I. Packer, in his book, uh, Knowing God, says this. He says, The notion that we are children of God, His own sons and daughters, lies at the very heart of all Christian theology and is the mainspring for all Christian living. So Sinclair Ferguson concludes that our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of our redemption. And so I want to look now at the next point. Adoption being the goal of our salvation. Ephesians 1.5 In love... He predestinated us to be adopted as His own dear children. In eternity past, God loved us. And He predestined us not simply to be saved and escape from hell. He predestinated us to be adopted as His own children. The goal of our salvation is adoption. In Luke chapter 3, there's this long um, genealogy uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke starts back with Adam. And he calls Adam a son of God. And if you look back in Genesis, Genesis, you see these clues that God does consider Adam uh, his son. In fact, uh, Seth, when he is born, he's called a son of God. Uh, God, when he created Adam and Eve, he created them in his image. Just like our children who were born from Mandy and I, have certain characteristics that uh, that favor us because we are their parents. 
God's purpose in creating Adam was to create children for himself. He knew, however, that they would sin, and they did sin. Adam rejected God's authority by eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God removed him from the garden, but in reality, Adam had already separated himself from God. Remember Adam when God, Adam and Eve when God came into the garden? Were they there to welcome him? No, they hid themselves from his presence. In fact, I believe the reason God removed them from the garden was not only his holiness, but also as a means of grace to show Adam and Eve that they were separated from him. And God gave this vivid picture of this angel with a sword flashing back and forth to guard the entrance back into the Garden of Eden. God wasn't being harsh. Rather, He was being merciful. And He's saying to Adam and Eve, Realize that you are separated from Me. That it is your sin that has separated you from Me. It is your rejecting of My authority that is, that is at issue. And so he removes them from the garden. He removes them from the tree of life so that they will realize that they indeed are separated from God. And that's the whole story of the Bible. Um, God is pursuing man. Man is running from him. Man is rebelling against God. And God so loved man that He sent His own Son to retrieve, to redeem, to purchase back for Himself His, um, His rebellious children. He sent His own Son that we might be adopted as His sons. The goal of our salvation is for God to welcome us back as His children. And He welcomes us back not as captured slaves, but as dearly loved children. That's the whole point of the, 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 the uh, parable of the prodigal child. A perfect illustration. A child who has taken his father's blessings, taken his father's wealth, went off and in um, prolific uh, living, squandered it all, and the father welcomed him back. Uh, immediately God embraced him and, uh, and is teaching us that he embraces us unconditionally when we come back to Him. Just as I am, without one plea. This is what what Paul is teaching us in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, and I love this. You don't see it in the, in the English, but in the Greek there's a, a henna, a purpose clause. In order that he might redeem those who had been born under the law, in order that, 
the second henna, second purpose clause, that in order that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent His Son in order that you might be adopted as His own dear children. Regardless of your past, regardless of your sins, Jesus came back to redeem those born under the law who were under the curse of the law that we might be His own dear children. Most people don't know this. I certainly out in the world when I ask my two questions, uh, the, the two uh, questions that I typically like to ask, if you died tonight, do you know for certain that uh, you'd go to heaven? And let's say you did die and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would, I, what would you say? Invariably, I get to the answer to the first question, yes, I think so, I hope so. And then the answer to the second question. I understand why they have uh, a shaky answer to the first. Because when I say, well, what would you say when God says, why should I let you into my heaven? Well, I try to be good enough. I hope God will, will accept me. I want to love people. And in their hearts they know they're not good enough. In their hearts they know that they don't love other people um, perfectly. And so the best that they can have for their first question is, I hope so. But I find that even among Christians, they think that God loves them only if they obey Him sufficiently. And they view God with mistrust, with suspicion, and even with fear. And let me just back up a little interlude, if I may, as we're talking about adoption. Adoption implies that we were once not God's children. Human beings, by nature, are not children of God. Uh, By nature, we are alienated from God. By nature, we are rebels. By nature, Ephesians 2 verse 3, we are children of wrath. And for a human being who is born, they need, who, who is born into this world, they need to become children of God. How do you become children of God? Free grace. Simply embracing Jesus Christ. Embracing Him and what He did on the cross. Embracing Him to bring you into God's family. And that's what salvation is. It's not some um, super individual uh, saved from hell so that you can, uh, and saved from your sins so you can live like you want to. No. Salvation is adoption into God's family. When you embrace Jesus Christ, God's Son, you are brought into His family as His own son or daughter. 
That's what rebirth is all about, or being born again. You're being born a second time. You're being born, really, you're dying to who you were. And you're being reborn into God's family. He adopts you as His own. He doesn't leave you after you become a Christian to make your way into heaven. He doesn't leave you to prove your love and sincerity. God wants you to look above yourself. He wants you to look at Him. You know, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. I can't preach on adoption without mentioning this verse. The ESV doesn't do it for me. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. I like the King James. Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Behold. Or as the ESV says, See. And what the Bible's, what, what John is telling us here in 1 John is to look above ourselves. Behold God. He loves us. And He loves us so much that He has adopted us into His family. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Of God. So your status as a Christian, your self-identity as a Christian is not a matter of your worthiness, but it's a matter of God's love for you. I want to say more. I'm going to, I'm going to fly um, into this third point. I've talked a lot about our complete inheritance the last two weeks. Remember, if the, if the government could tax our um, our, um, our our inheritance in Christ, um, then all of their spending problems, all their debt problems, would be taken care of immediately. I'm going to move into this idea of absolute security. Romans eight. I'm going to start with verses 15 through 17 and try and roll um, this point in with the next on our freedom and confidence. Romans 8 verses 15 through 17. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. What Paul's saying here is that we need the Spirit, we need the witness of the Holy Spirit, because it is such a struggle for us to believe that salvation is entirely of God's grace and His love. We feel instinctively that we've got to bring something to the table. And when we don't feel like we've brought enough, well, I haven't read my Bible today. I haven't read my Bible in the last week. I haven't read my Bible in the last month. I haven't prayed sincerely enough. We begin shrinking back. Or if we have sinned. Um, and um, then, we, then we need 
to be continually reminded because of our unfaithfulness. We need to be reminded that God's love for His children is unshakable. And God knows that uh, we have amnesia. We remember it today, we'll forget it tomorrow when we're being squeezed by the circumstances of life. And so He says that He has given us His Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 16, and by our, our, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And so He doesn't just kick us out the door of the church on Sunday and say, and say remember that you're God's children. But He has sent the Spirit of His Son. He sent the Holy Spirit to make His home in your heart. To remind you constantly that you are God's child. In spite of your sin. In spite of your lack of faithfulness. Plus, the, the, the Satan is always accusing us. Uh, the end of Romans chapter 8. Um, and so the Holy Spirit is there to remind us. Satan is always trying to make us feel like we're slaves again. But the Holy Spirit is saying, No, you are free in Christ. You are a child of God and can cry, Abba, Father. Verse 15 in Romans 8, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. I've rolled two points in together and now I'm trying to figure out where I'm at. I wanted to mention another book. This is one of my favorites. You can... Heaven on Earth, in fact. I've I've read the cover off of it. This is Thomas Brooks, my favorite Puritan. And Charles Spurgeon loved Thomas Brooks as well. In fact, he had a, a book entitled Smooth Stones from Thomas Thomas Brooks. Okay, like picking stones out of the brook. Uh, but here's what Thomas Brooks says. Most Christians live between fears and hopes and hang, as it were, between heaven and hell. Sometimes they hope that their state is good. At other times they fear that their state is bad. Now they hope that all is well and that it shall go well with them forever. And then again, they fear that they shall perish by the hand of such, such a corruption or by the prevalency of such a temptation. And so they are like a ship in a storm tossed here and there. Isn't that an accurate description of how we often feel as Christians? And he's talking here, the book is Heaven on Earth, and he's saying Heaven on Earth is having assurance of salvation. He says, the being in a state of grace makes makes a man's condition happy, safe, and sure. So being a Christian makes one happy, safe, and secure. But the seeing, the knowing of himself to be in such a state, is that which renders his life sweet and comfortable. Hear the distinction he's saying, it's possible to be a Christian, but not be sure you are one. 
and your state is safe and secure even though you don't realize it. And so he says, it's one thing for me to have grace, it is another thing for me to see my grace. It is one thing for me to believe, and yet another thing for me to believe that I do believe. It is one thing for me to have faith, it is another thing for me to know that I have faith. He says this idea of assurance of salvation is a pearl that most lack a crown that few wear. His state is safe and happy whose soul is adorned with grace though he sees it not, though he knows it not. If that is you, if you live your Christian life day by day wondering whether God loves me, wondering if some sin in your life was so bad that God may not receive you into His presence. The Scriptures, and that's where we found our, find our foundation. And Thomas Brooks concurs that even if you don't know your, your, the security that you have in Christ, it is there and it is firm. As I said, I think last week or the week before, in quoting Charles Spurgeon, he was so sure of his salvation that he would, be, he would gladly swing out over the pit of hell on a spider's web to laugh at Satan in his face. That is certainty of one's salvation. And even if you don't know it, or even if you have a hard time believing it, your salvation in Christ is that firm and secure. And so he concludes, to have grace and to be sure that we have grace is glory upon the throne. It is heaven on this side of heaven. So it is possible to have heaven on earth. He would conclude, isn't that something? Assurance is a blessing to be desired above all else. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. That's why it says here in Galatians chapter 4, that's why it says in Romans chapter 8, that He sent the Spirit into our hearts to concur with our spirit, to help our spirit, uh, so that we're two witnesses. Remember, uh, back in Deuteronomy, uh, every matter must be established by two witnesses. Well, God has sent His Spirit to be that second witness, to help us cry in our heart, Abba, Father. He bears witness with our spirit. And so, this is why it's so important And why we emphasize as a church the need to read the Word of God. To be filled with the promises of God. To be renewed with what God is saying to us uh, about His love for us. Because as we read His Word, the Spirit uses His Word and it becomes a thunderclap in our souls. I am a child of God. Martin Luther, and he's able to say things like few other people are able to say them. He's talking about the importance of the Word of God and how the Spirit of God uses the Word of God in our souls. He says that he would not live in paradise if he might without the Word 
But with the Word, he could live in hell itself. The ministry of the Spirit in our lives is to give us a deep-seated persuasion that we really are the children of God. John Owen, another Puritan, who I rarely recommend because he did not write to be understood. I think he, he, wrote, he thought in Latin and wrote in English, and, and he, he's very difficult. But he says this in one of his more clear moments. In the midst of the plea and contest, the Comforter, being the Holy Spirit, comes, and by a word of promise, he uses this word, overpowers the heart with a comfortable persuasion and bears down all objections that his plea is good and that he is indeed a child of God. The Holy Spirit uses His Word and is able to bear down or overcome all our objections. No, I am a sinner. My sin is too great. The Spirit is able to overcome those objections so that we are able to know that we are the child of God. One more point from this Romans 17 that... um, I added this in later in the week. Um, Verse 17 in Romans 8 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. I was looking at this passage this week, and I was a little uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm just going to over. I'm not going to mention this word "suffer" because everything I want to say before that—that's uh, what I want to say. But this idea of suffering here in the middle of assurance, and then I got this call from Kathy Whitehurst on Friday that uh, Felicia's uh, granddaughter, her one-year-old daughter, had fallen down the steps. And then I talked to Felicia after. Um, her, her, um, after her grandchild had been admitted into the uh, emergency room and gotten the CAT scan, she's broken her skull in several places and it's deeply bruised. Um, but uh, she has all her motor functions and everything else, so they're very confident that she'll heal. Um, in my experience, babies bounce. Um, we found that out from dropping our own children off the changing table multiple times. <laughs> but um, when I when I heard this, I was I was not happy. Of course, in fact, I was a little angry. I said, "Fleece has been through a lot." And I'm looking at this passage in Romans 8. And he's talking about assurance and he's talking about suffering. And I'm, I'm saying, why am I uncomfortable with this idea of suffering with Christ? What's happening here in this passage? And I think what God is saying here in verse 17 is that part of our assurance or rather our our assurance is strengthened when we suffer with Him. And so the suffering 
Paul's saying is a good thing. In fact, in Romans, uh, three chapters earlier, Romans chapter 5, verse 3, he says, We rejoice in our sufferings. But when we have suffering in our lives, I think we approach it completely differently. We say, Why is God against me? When in reality, God is our Father, and He loves us. And everything that He does in our lives, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, this is Romans 8, 17. What is this, 11, 12 verses later? He says He works all things together for our good. Does Paul have amnesia? Has he, has he forgotten what's going on? I think what's happening is sometimes because God so loves us, He'll bring suffering into our lives. He will remove all earthly comforts and joys maybe for a period and he'll put us in positively uncomfortable circumstances why would he do that so that we would be weaned off this world so that the things of this world would become distasteful to us so that God would become more tasteful to us so that we would hunger and thirst for him more And I think that's what's happening. So the the idea is, instead of, God, why are you against me? Thank you, God, for my suffering. Because everything you do is good. He's the Father of lights from whom all good things come. James chapter 1. Now, if you live your life like this... God, I'm willing, I'm eager to embrace the cross. I am eager to embrace suffering. You'll be called crazy, even within the church. Because this idea of embracing suffering because God is good to His children is so foreign to us. Remember blind Bartimaeus? You know, Jesus, son Son of Man, have mercy on me. He's wanting the right thing and he's calling out louder and louder. What are the people doing? You know, be quiet, you crazy blind man. They're rebuking him. When he wants what is right. God loves his children. God, if you are in Jesus Christ, he loves you. If you are outside of Jesus Christ and want to have nothing to do with Him, you should have no expectation of His love. You come to Jesus Christ and you will receive His love unconditionally, freely, and immediately. I'm going to say one last... This is going to be um, my last point. In terms of this intimacy uh, in relationship and prayer, I had a few things I wanted to say about that, but something happened this morning and I just thought, this is too beautiful. Um, I came in, the, the kids meet for for um, a little convocation before Sunday school and they pray together and then they go together to their Sunday school classes. And so I came in and uh, Therese McKenzie had been asking for, for um, prayer requests. I came in and interrupted her and started talking about something that was having to do with me <laughs> and threw her off and so then after I, I finished she started praying 
And uh, she had forgotten one of the prayer requests because of my interruption. And so as she's praying, she's about to get, get ready to say amen. Two of the children yell out, Don't forget Caitlin, but God heal her of cold. <laughs> and they yelled it out loudly, and my first response was, that was a little brash, you know. You, you. And then I thought, perfect illustration. They're coming with boldness. They're coming with confidence. God is their father. And they wanted to lift up Caitlin. And they did right there um, in the middle of Teresa's prayer. Our God loves us and he welcomes us to come to him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God. Remind us again and again and again of your love. Help us to embrace you as our Father when um, suffering comes our way. Help us to embrace it knowing that we are in your embrace and that you will never leave us. You will never let go of us. You will never forsake us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.